Today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 till 10. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the house of faith. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I have to say it's good to be back with you. Uh, I'm always grateful to be back after a couple of weeks out, but I'm also grateful for the time I get when I get a couple of weeks out of the pulpit. Last week, Pastor Chad, he shared an illustration in a sermon, if you were here, in which he compared our lives to a ballroom, if you remember this. And so much of our lives are spent kind of on the dance floor. That's where all of our roles and responsibilities are. The music's loud. We're kind of bumping into each other. Things feel a bit chaotic. It's easy when you're on the dance floor for urgent things to overshadow important things and to just kind of get into, you know, uh, a certain mindset. And what Chad encouraged us, he said it's really important from time to time to get off the, the dance floor into the balcony and actually do some time of reflection with God about our life. And I'll tell you, when, when I get a little bit of time off, it's an opportunity for me to climb into the balcony and think not just about my life, but about our church. Because there's so much going on. Ministry definitely feels like a rave sometimes. <laughs> like it's just, there's so much going on. And it's good, but there's so much. And it's so important to be able to step back, reflect. And I'll tell you, uh, over, over the last three weeks, as I consider all that God is doing in our midst, I'm genuinely overwhelmed. Paul says, you know, we should, that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And I've been here about eight years. Sojourn East has been around 10 years. And in my eight years here, God has done immeasurably more than I could have asked or imagined. How our church has grown. The end of year campaign is such a huge encouragement. Not just because we have resources, but because it shows that there's support. And it wasn't one or two people that wrote a check. Like, everyone played a part in it. I look at where we've come from as a church and where we're going and the life change, the conversions, how we've grown in diversity, and I'm overwhelmed with joy, and I'm also convinced that our work is just getting started. I'm convinced that the first, our first 10 years, which we celebrate this fall, I'm convinced that that, that was all preparation. And I recognize our world is changing, the church's role in the world is changing, in our culture, Christianity is going to experience new and fresh challenges. And I'm convinced that God is raising our church up for such a time as this, that we might provide and, and demonstrate incredible gospel fruit 
in the years to come. And so the, the question I've been praying and asking is, okay, how do we steward this well? How do we steward what God has given us well? And I'm convinced that great fruit comes from deep roots. That if the roots are good, the fruit appears. And so what we've been talking about is, okay, how do we get our roots to grow deeper into God's word, into the truths of the gospel, into the promises of God? And one of the answers to that question is next week we're going to start a series unlike any series we've ever done at Sojourn. We're going to begin a two-and-a-half-year journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And some of you might be overwhelmed by that. We're going we're gonna to bring some breaks in, just so you know. We'll, uh, for those of you with ADD, two-and-a-half years seems like way too long. We're going we're gonna to mix it up, but what I found in the church is a lot of times we know an awful lot about Jesus. Sometimes we know a lot about theology, but we don't always know Jesus. And we don't know his life. And every time I open the Gospels, they're fresh. Sometimes they're strange. They're hard. They're encouraging. There's truths in Matthew. I don't care if you've read it 50 times. There's so many truths to be mined. And so we're going to Matthew praying that we would know Jesus more. It also doesn't hurt that Dr. Pennington, who preaches regularly here, who's he's like one of the world's best scholars on the book of Matthew, like in the whole world. And so... That's helpful for me, you know, to have him around, but really, really excited for that series, and I think it's going to be a transformative, and I'm praying, and I'd ask that you would pray with me that it would be a series that transforms us as a church, our character, our vision, who we are. But that's next week. This week, we're actually diving back into Galatians, can't give it up, loved it too much. Um, When I was studying Galatians, I came across this passage And I wasn't able to preach it because of time and the way the schedule worked out, but I haven't been able to shake these verses for a couple of months. And while I pray that we need our roots to grow deeper in the truths of the gospel, I'm also convinced for us to be the people God is calling us to be. We can't neglect wisdom and how important wisdom is in the life of a believer. And so we're going to press into this text and... uh, Recognize if we want to be a people who grow in maturity, there's truths that Paul lays out here that we can't deny and we can't ignore. And so kind of what I want to invite you to do this morning is for you to climb up into the balcony for the next 30 minutes or so as we consider this text and do some, own, some reflection on your own of your life, of where you've come from, where you are. Think of some questions that maybe you don't ask nearly enough. Where do you want to be? as we come before this very simple yet profound text in which Paul tells us, you reap what you sow. And we're going to look at this text under three headings. Number one, you reap what you sow. Number two, you reap greater than you sow. And number three, you reap later than you sow. It's a simple outline for simple truths that are yet very difficult, I think, for us to grasp. At times, starting with this concept of you reap what you sow. And if you were here with us throughout our series in Galatians, this text, part of the reason it's stuck with me and I haven't been able to shake it is because for the entire book of Galatians, Paul has been saying, We are saved by grace and grace alone. We don't bring anything to the table in our salvation. 
There's no exchange other than us giving God our sin and him giving us Christ's righteousness. That's over and over again in Galatians. That's the only drum. It's like the only note Paul knows. He's playing a recorder, and that's the only one he can play over and over again for six chapters where it's almost unbearable. And then at the very end, these are the last verses of Galatians before Paul picks up his pen and writes his postscript. The last thing he says to the Galatian church is, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. The first time I read this, it sounds, like, it sounds like Paul's taking away with his right hand everything he's given with his left. It sounds like karma. It sounds actually antithetical to the gospel of grace because the gospel of grace is anything but you reap what you sow. The gospel of grace is we've sown sin, but God in his kindness has given us his righteousness. And so what's going on here? Well, Paul's a smart guy. Paul didn't put all of his effort into this letter talking about the grace of God so that at the very end he could take it back and cause us to all feel really insecure and confused. That's not what Paul's doing here. What Paul's doing here at the end of Galatians is he's calling us to acknowledge something that we all already know intuitively, which is that life is connected. And that if you plant tomato seeds, what do you get? Tomatoes, right? If you plant kernels of corn, what do you get? You get corn. I was talking to my kids about this the last couple of weeks. My my six-year-old totally gets this principle. Why do you get tomatoes when you plant tomato seeds? Because life is connected and because God has woven this principle of reaping and sowing into the very fabric of creation. This is not just a principle, you could almost call it a law. Like you can bank on it. It's like gravity. And the law, it's not necessarily like gravity. Is gravity a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's probably morally neutral. I don't know. Generally, I'm for gravity. You know? <laughs> could you imagine if God could flip the switch of gravity on and off arbitrarily at will? Very difficult to get things done, right? You going to work this week? I don't know. In the same way, this law of reaping and sowing, it gives life a measure of stability and predictability. I mean, imagine if every time you planted seeds, what are you planting? I don't know. Could be peanuts. Could be poison ivy. We're just throwing the seed in, and nine months, a year from now, we're going to figure it out. No. In life, in this world, you reap what you sow. What you harvest is always connected to what you've planted. And this principle extends beyond farming and agriculture into every dimension of life. One scholar said that this principle, reaping and sowing, he says what Paul does here in Galatians 6 is he summarizes the entire book of Proverbs in one sentence. Do you want to know what Proverbs teaches? That which you sow, you're also going to reap. Now, this is obvious, right? No one came and said, did you know you're not going to leave? Did you know if you plant tomato seeds, you get tomatoes? Like That's, that's, not, that's not new information for us. 
That doesn't strike us as profound. Some of you are yawning. But look at what Paul says. Paul says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. See, Paul recognizes that this principle, this truth, while we all know it and it's all common sense and we learn it when we're five, it often slips to the periphery of our thinking. And that often while we would acknowledge, yes, this is true, we don't live like it is true. This is why Paul says, do not be deceived, because he knows we all have a tremendous capacity for self-deception, myself included. We all have a tendency to think that we are the exception to the rules. Sometimes we willfully sow bad seeds, right? We, we feed destructive habits. We give ourselves over to sin. We neglect the important things in our life. But we think, I can get away with it. We do dumb things and we think, but it's not going to come back on me. Why? Because I'm the exception. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived. One way we deceive ourselves is we think we're exceptions to the rule. Another way we deceive ourselves, though, is we misunderstand the nature of God's grace. And I think this is maybe why Paul's really putting this here. And you know, I'm a grace guy. I'm convinced that there's no sin so great that the love of God is not greater still. And wherever you are today, whatever you're bringing in here, whatever you have in your past, it's not so great that the blood of Christ cannot cover it. I am a grace guy. But sometimes we misunderstand grace to think just because God forgives, he's going to make consequences of our actions go away. What Paul's trying to remind us here is that while God is eager to forgive sins, he usually, not always, usually though, he will still let us, like a good father, still feel at least some of the consequences of our actions. When we make stupid decisions, God will often allow us to feel at least some of the consequences of those decisions. If I eat a pint of ice cream every day for six months, I can ask God for forgiveness for my gluttony, and he will grant it, right? But that won't make the weight measure or just magically fall off. I learned that in college, freshman year of college. I'm like sitting there talking with someone. Yeah, I've been gaining weight. I don't know what's going on. And every day it's like eating a pint of ice cream. Well, I've, I've got a couple of ideas, Kevin. Like we reap what we sow. Life is connected. Don't be deceived. See, Paul, he doesn't want us to deceive ourselves in thinking we're the exception. He doesn't want us to over, so over-spiritualize our lives that we neglect this basic reality that where we are in life today, we're here in large part of de- because of decisions we made yesterday. And where we're going to be tomorrow is going to be largely shaped by the decisions that we make today. You know, oftentimes in life we ask, God, why is this happening to me? We cry out either verbally or just in our minds, God, why is this happening to me? And I want you to hear me here. There are aspects of life that are mysterious. Suffering at times is mysterious. 
unexplained tragedies do happen. Some of you, you've been diagnosed with an illness. Doctors don't have any reason. Can't explain why you have it. Some of you have gone through unbearable loss, like burying a child. It's not your fault. This is why I thank God for books like the book of Job and Ecclesiastes, because they teach us that sometimes suffering is mysterious, sometimes life is mysterious, and there are certainly exceptions to the rule. Where this gets tricky, though, is that we live in a culture that obsesses over obsession or obsesses over exceptions. And as a whole, our culture likes to disregard the rule. And so while, yes, God gave us Ecclesiastes and Job, he also gave us the book of Proverbs. And what Paul is saying here is that when we're tempted to cry out to God, why is this happening to me? The first thing we should look to, the first place we should look is what have I sown? Doesn't have to be the only place. But when we're tempted to say, God, why is my life like this? Paul's saying, well, go look at your last 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, and you just might find your answer. You reap what you sow. And conversely, don't expect to reap where you haven't sown. You shouldn't expect to harvest in a field in which you have not planted. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor people will come to me with their problems and they'll say, Pastor, I, like, I'm just struggling to believe that God's going to provide for me. I'm always stressed about money. I don't know what to do. I'm so stressed about money. And I'll say, do you have a budget? And they'll say, no, no, no. I hate budgets. And my response is always, no, you hate reality. Because all a budget is, it's reality. And if you're careless and reckless and thoughtless, of course you're going to be stressed about money because you're burying your head in the sand. Or I'll have people come and they'll say, I don't have deep relationships. I just wish I had deep relationships. It's like, well, when was the last time you sought someone out? Do you put people's needs before your own? To be real, Frank, like, are you cold and abrasive? Are you arrogant? Go even further, press a little further. How many times do I hear people say, God just seems distant? And hear me, I believe in the dark night of the soul where you seek God and seek God and seek God, and yet he just remains elusive. But I think the dark night of the soul is actually a very rare thing, and it usually comes upon the lives of the most mature saints. And often when people say God feels distant, I'm like, well, have you sought him? When was the last time you prayed? When was the last time you opened the word? Like sometimes God's elusive, but usually my guess is we're just not seeking him. But then we hide behind an excuse of like, well, God seems distant. I'm stressed about money. I don't have any friends. And we refuse to look and say, well, I've never wanted to live in reality with my finances. I expect everyone to cross the aisle and talk to me and accommodate my life. And I think that somehow God's just, my relationship with God is just going to magically strengthen without me putting any effort into it. This is what the Bible calls a fool. 
And so many of life's frustrations, so much of our spiritual stagnation comes because we don't want to acknowledge this truth. We, we like living deceived, thinking that we won't reap what we sow and we will reap things that we have not sown. Now, in holding this truth before us, I want to be really clear Paul, he's not wagging his nose or wagging his finger in our nose like a grumpy old man. He's not saying, I'm telling you, you reap what you... Like, that's, that's not his heart. His toning, tone in writing here is not so much to indict us, but rather to invite us to a better way of life. Because if we rightly apply this principle to our lives, we can actually leverage it for tremendous good. If we ignore it, it will be to our peril. If we leverage it, we can do amazing things. My wife and I watched uh, the movie First Man about the first Apollo 11 landing on the moon. And something in that movie that really stuck out to me, I'm fascinated by this space program. Sometimes I look up at the moon and I'm like, I can't believe we did that. That is amazing. And so I love watching these movies. What I never realized is, you know, once the spacecraft breaks the atmosphere, you know how fast it's going? Something like 36,000 feet per second, which is 25,000 feet per minute. Or 25,000 miles per hour, uh, sorry. And it's, it's crazy to think about going that fast. Now, what they did is they're going this fast, and then if you know anything about Apollo 11, they didn't just go and like plop on the moon. They're going in and they have to get into the orbit of the moon, and then they're going to detach you know, another uh, craft off of that that's going to land on the moon. It's, it's amazing. And the moon's traveling at 2,500 miles an hour. This is traveling 25,000 miles an hour. They've never done it before. And yet, you know what happened? We put a man on the moon. It's amazing. How could they do that? Well, because there are some fixed laws in the universe. There's the law of gravity. You can actually, if you're good with math, which I am not, but if you are, you can sit down and figure out the science behind it, and you can plan the whole thing. And it's reliable because the laws that God has woven into the fabric of the universe, they are reliable. And if you reject them and think you can jump off a skyscraper and fly, this one doesn't apply to me. It can be to your peril. But if you recognize them and live in line with them, you can do amazing things like put a man on the moon. You reap what you sow, and Paul is saying, don't neglect this, leverage it for good. Not only do we reap what we sow, what we reap is always greater than what we've sown. If you plant a grain of wheat, you get a stalk of wheat that produces dozens if not hundreds of grain. If you plant an acorn, eventually you get an oak tree that will produce tens of thousands of acorns. If this wasn't true, there would be no point in farming. Amen? If you planted a kernel of corn and then you waited every day for three months and then a kernel of corn popped up, that would not be a good return on investment for your business. But the harvest is always greater than the planting. And when you understand this, then you begin to understand, all right, how do I leverage this for good? Because people have been leveraging this reality that the harvest is greater than the planting in the agricultural realm for thousands of years. And that's to a large extent while we're still on this planet and we're flourishing. People recognized it and then they lived in line with it. 
we can leverage this principle for tremendous good. In verse 8, Paul shows how this transcends beyond just the natural world into the spiritual world. He says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul says that if we sow to the Spirit, which means if in our day in and day out living, we're walking with the Spirit, we're paying attention to what the Spirit's doing, we're seeking to honor God with our lives, to do good, to obey, to live and step into fully the life that God has for us. Paul says if we do that, one day we're going to reap a harvest that's beyond what we can imagine. We're going to reap eternal life. We're going to reap life in abundance today that if you walk in the Spirit for a long time in the same direction, you get to see amazing things in this life. We cross from death. We get to see people cross from death to life. Lives change. Families changed. We get to experience it in our own souls that we live from being in this state of constant chaos and to a place of deep contentment. We get to grow in wisdom that as we mature in following him, we become the types of people that maybe 10, 20 years ago we never thought we would be. That's just in this life. And then the scriptures are full of these other promises beyond this life. That we're sowing seeds now that will, in a mysterious way, <laughs> we will be reaping a harvest for eternity from. If you could go and invest $10 and be told that the rest of your life, I guarantee a return on this 10 bucks, you would do it. What about eternity? Paul's saying, you're doing small things, walking with them. But if you do it, the return is going to be so much greater than the investment. And he says, conversely, though, if we sow to the flesh, which is living for ourselves, instant gratification, indulging in whatever desire pops up in our lives, Paul says we're going to reap corruption. And that word corruption could also be translated as disintegration. And I think that's actually a good word. Because what Paul is saying here is, we all know this, sin is a cancer. Sin makes things fall apart. And Paul says if we're sowing to the flesh, we're sowing sin, impulsiveness, selfishness, self-centeredness, instant gratification. Paul says, in the end, what you're going to reap eventually is corruption, disintegration. Things are going to start falling apart in your life. Your life's going to start falling apart. Small sins end up bringing big consequences. There's a verse in Hosea 8. They who sow the wind reap the whirlwind. That we make small decisions to indulge in sin. And Paul wants us to see there's no small sin and no small indulgence. If you sow dishonesty, you lie to those who love, what happens? Those you love, what happens? Trust disintegrates, right? Corruption. Relationship breaks down. If you sow to this, you know, the flesh and 
jealousy and envy, constantly looking at other people, comparing yourselves to them, being embittered because something good has happened to them that hasn't happened to you? What happens? Well, that relationship starts to disintegrate. Tears at the fabric of how God has created us. Jealousy creeps in, and then next thing you know, you're delighting when bad things happen to them. And we all do that, right? I, I do it. But when you step back and think of it, like, how dark, how dark is the sin within us that we at times just delight when horrible things happen to people, when tragedies befall them, when misfortune comes? How do we become those kinds of people? Because we're sowing seeds that seem small, but they reap corruption and disintegration. What you reap is always greater than what you sow, for better or worse. Now, I'm guessing not one of you woke up this week and said, you know what? I want to grow up to be a bitter, jealous, vengeful, angry person. All right, anyone here? I'm going to put some effort in becoming more vengeful and bitter this week. Like, no one wants to be that, and yet so many people are. Why? They don't recognize that you reap what you sow, you reap greater than you sow. And where they really struggle is they miss the fact that you always reap later than you sow. And this is where this truth, this principle, which is so simple, becomes so difficult for us. Reaping always comes after sowing. Harvesting always comes after planting. You never sow and then reap in the same day as much as I wish you could. Sometimes you get to reap quickly. You know, lettuce takes about 30 days. You plant a lettuce seed at the right time in the right, so right soil, 30 days later, boom, you're having salad. Other things like corn, corn takes about three months, 90 days. So that takes longer. Then you get to other things like apples or pears. And we're no longer talking months, we're talking decades to have a flourishing tree. This is where this principle becomes so challenging. You never reap what you sow in the same day. And generally speaking, this is why sowing to the flesh is easier than sowing to the spirit, right? Can I say that? Am I allowed to say that as a pastor? Sowing to the flesh is easier than sowing to the Spirit. And the reason why is because, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but not many of the things that God tells us not to do feel bad in the moment. Can anyone give me an amen? Can I get one amen? Okay, right? God, God tells us not to do things, and an awful lot of the things he tells us not to do, in the moment they feel pretty good. Someone slights you, and God says, don't be bitter, don't harbor anger. I don't know, there's a lot of pleasure to be derived out of 15 minutes just stewing in anger and planning what you're going to say to them in front of other people, how you're going to bury them and pay them back for how they've insulted. I mean, it's a weird, twisted thing, but there's some, there's some real pleasure there. I remember listening to a comedian once who loved to drink wine and too much of it, and a friend asked him, don't you get a headache? Don't you get a hangover? And he was like, eventually... But the first and the middle part are amazing. And that's the way the flesh works, right? 
You might really enjoy it for the beginning and the middle, but eventually the hangover's coming. And yet we often neglect that and saying yes to the flesh. It's so easy. And Paul's saying, but if you do, you're letting seeds of disintegration take root in your heart. On the flip side, sowing to the Spirit is oftentimes really difficult. Because we have the old man, the old woman in us, our flesh, our sin, which runs counter to the Spirit. We have pretty much the whole current of the world telling us, this is the way to life. Our bodies are like, yeah, that feels good. And the Spirit's saying, no, 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 it's this way. It's that way. And it's going to take an awful lot of work. And a lot of what God calls us to, it's not instantly gratifying. There's not a whole lot of instant gratification in growing in Christ-likeness. Denying yourself, it's not instantly gratifying. Serving, it's not instantly gratifying. Being generous giving money away here that you can't spend over, it's not instantly gratifying. Now, the promise of the scriptures, what experience will teach you over time, is that the joy does come and the joy is greater than anything we experience in the moment. But it takes a long time and we don't know what to do with that because more than any generation in history, we revel in instant gratification. We don't know how to wait for anything. We, if I like go to buy something online and it's more than two days, I'm like, what is this, 1990? Get it to my door. <laughs> What's taking so long? Or think about some of you made New Year's resolutions. You're like, I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to eat healthy. You ate salad for two days in a row and you expected to get on the scale and have lost 10 pounds and you didn't. And you're like, this, this diet doesn't work. Dieting never works for me. Really? I'm going to live in it by a budget. You try it for a week or two, and, and you're still stressed because you're just starting to dig yourself out of the hole that, that you put yourself in. We want to reap and sow in the same day, and that's not how life works. Hear me here. Write this down. Sowing is about the future, not the present. When you make sowing about the present, you create real problems in your life. Sowing, the decisions we make today, it's about the future, not the present. And sowing to the future is hard. And that's why I love this text. Because Paul in verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It seems pretty harsh. But then in verse 9, he gives us such a word of encouragement. He says, let's not grow weary of doing good. Why would Paul say that at the end of his letter unless growing weary was a real temptation? <laughs> Paul knows. I mean, Paul knows what it's like to care, to carry burdens, to be faithful to God in a world that's faithless, to stay true to his word when everyone around wants to, to cast it aside. Paul knows the weariness the hardship, the exhaustion that can come from a life of obedience. And he's saying, I get it, but don't grow weary. Why? Because in due season, 
at God's appointed time, you're going to reap if we don't give up. And he's saying, don't give up. Don't pull back. Don't check out. Don't disengage. You're going to reap a harvest. But it's just going to take a lot of time. To give the most quintessential suburbanite example possible, my neighbor has the most amazing lawn you've ever seen. We moved in, and it was one of the first things I noticed. I bought the house so I could look at his yard, you know? <laughs> the grass, deep, rich, lush, green, evergreen. It was green this morning when I left. It looks like something out of a Bob Ross painting. It's amazing. My house, though, my yard looks like something out of a Tim Burton film. You know, it's like greenish and brown, and it's been like that since we bought the house. And it doesn't seem like anything I do is going to change it. Like, could I spray paint it? Do they have like a dye you can put on your yard? Well, a while back, I began to watch my neighbor. Uh, and he's retired, and so this is a project of his. Uh, but he put a lot of time into it. And he had the thing fertilized probably, I don't know, four or six times a year, treated. And I'm like, for so long I was jealous, like, why, does, why is the grass greener on the other side, you know? Like, it's so cliche. Why is my... And I realized, you know what the difference between his yard and my yard is? Because I've been fertilizing and I've been doing the work. You know what the difference is? It's years. Like, his yard is where it is because of years of dedicated effort. And honestly, with a yard, I mean, yards are great, uh, but I don't know if that's what I want to give my life to. But the principle stands. You know, Bill Gates once said, he's not a believer, but this is gospel truth. He said most people overestimate what they can do in a year, and they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. I would say for us, in this day, we overestimate what we can do in a week, in a month, and we neglect what we can do with a life, long obedience in the same direction. And so I want to close inviting you to get up on the balcony to look at your life and start asking some questions like, who do I want to become? Is who I am today who I want to be five years from now, ten years from now? Who do you want to become? Maybe you want to become a person of great wisdom. What are you sowing now to reap a harvest of being wise? Maybe you want to live a life of radical generosity, legendary generosity. What little steps are you taking in being generous? Maybe you want to live a life of courageous faith. Maybe you see Larry and Susan about to get on a plane and move to Madrid to go plant a church, and you think, that's crazy, and I could never do that, but you're also intrigued. What are steps you can start taking? What are seeds you can start sowing so that in 10 years or 20 years you could reap a harvest of the like they have of faith? You see, this principle, it invites us to quit living so reactively and to start living proactively. So listen, if you're here and you're 25 years, of, 25 years old or younger, maybe you're in middle school, high school, college, just graduated, I want you to listen closely. Look at me. Listen closely. Everyone in this room over the age of 35 or 40, you know what they're thinking right now? 
They're not thinking. I don't know if that's true. Like the older you get in this room, you look around, they're all nodding along. You know why? Because they know how true this reality is. Some of them are thinking, I wish I heard this when I was younger. But they did. We all did. But when you're young, you think you're invincible. When you're young, you think that the decisions you're making aren't going to actually come back to get you. Because you make a dumb decision, but you're able to lie to mom. You're able to deceive your teacher. (laughs) You can get away with it. I was the best at it. Hear me on this. But eventually, you're not going to be able to get away with it. So many people I know who are older, we look at our lives and we just think, if I could go back to 20, 20 years old, how different would my life be if I could go make some different decisions? The little choices you're making, students, fresh out of college, the choices you're making today, what you say yes to, what you say no to, what thoughts and fantasies you feed and what you resist, they're going to shape you in ways that you can't imagine right now. Now, if you're over 25, over 35, you might hear this. Um, and I just know, I know a lot of you here are reaping a bad harvest from seeds you've sown years ago. And you're thinking about your life and the hardships you're going through right now. And you're feeling maybe guilt, maybe shame, maybe regret. And I want you to hear this sermon, just like this principle, it's not about the past. It's about the future. I'm not holding this truth before you to make you feel guilty or shameful or, or feel feelings of regret. And so if you're in that place, here's what I want you to hear. You can't do anything about today's harvest. There's nothing you can do. You can do something about next year's harvest. You can't change 5, 10, 20 years worth of decisions in an instant. You can't change today's harvest. And and the the great promise of the gospel is that Jesus, he's promised that we're not going to even suffer through bad harvests alone. We might suffer through it because of our foolishness, but Jesus is like, I'm going to bear it with you. I'm going, to, I'm going to get up underneath the burden. And Jesus, he actually redeems those bad harvests sometimes. Because some of the most valuable lessons in life come through reaping a bad harvest, right? One of the main things, don't sow that again. And then you're the person at the Bible study or the meeting or whatever saying, hey, hey, listen to me, please. I have some hard-won wisdom. And so if you're here feeling regret, stop. You can't do anything about this year's harvest. You can do something about next year's. And so as you're looking at this coming year, whatever your vision for your life is, it's so much smaller than what God's vision for your life is. And I want to ask you, what seeds are you sowing? And what harvest five years from now when I preach this sermon again? Five years from now, what do you want to look back at that point and say, look at how I've grown and look at what God's done? As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded, we're reminded that while on this earth we do reap what we sow, 
But the grace of God means that even the dumbest things that we've sown don't define us. We might have the consequences, but they don't define us. Because Jesus Christ offered his body to be broken for our sin and our foolishness. And his blood was spilled so that we might be cleansed. And so I'm going to pray in a minute. If you're here and you're a believer, I, I encourage you to come forward and to feast upon this meal, which reminds us and points us to the deep love that God has for us. But I also pray that you would engage for at least a few minutes in some holy imagination and that you wouldn't leave here today without at least considering who do I want to become? What do I want my life to be? And praying, God, what do you want me to become? Who do you want me to become? Let me pray. Father, we praise you that we can call you Father, even though we know that you are ruling from heaven and you uphold everything. Lord, so often we think we, we think we can get away with things. We think that our lives can mock you and the principles and the laws that you've put in place. And we're so slow to learn. But we thank you for how gracious and merciful you are to us. Lord, as we come to your table, I pray for people who are feeling deep conviction that they would be overwhelmed with a sense of your mercy. For people who are feeling very calloused, I pray that your spirit would break through. I pray for all of us that we would realize we've been given one life. You've put us here. You've put opportunities before us. And I pray that we would be faithful enough to at least start asking the questions, who do I want to be? And even more important, who do you want us to be? We ask all of these things in Jesus' name.